Hi, this is Tamsin Granger. And this is Dan Abuhoff. With Tamsin and Dan, read the paper on Sunday, November 17th. A very gray day. In 2019. Yes. But it's kind of a happy day because we get to belatedly wish happy birthday to Granger. Yes. Our oldest son. Oh, it's not? Yes. Yes, that's uh, true. He just flew in and boy, are his arms oh, tired. It's so weak. It's so weak. Um, from Bogota. Yeah. And uh, so happy birthday, Granger. We're yes. going to have some cake tonight. Yes. Looking forward to cake it. Cake tonight. Although we're looking forward to Thanksgiving, too. Already the ruminations, the, the sounds, the uh, the noises that accompany Thanksgiving. Really? Starting Are you a talking farts, burps, oh, no, etc.? No, no, no. Don't say that. I'm just talking about, you know, the talk about preparations. You know, they... I mentioned to you, well, I find myself in a conversation in the cafeteria. My cafeteria at work is selling pies. You know, sign up for a pie, take it home and be the hero at Thanksgiving. And even others at work know me well enough to say, or know you well enough to say, that Dan, if you buy and take home a pie, you'll be shot. Which is true, because you... I mean, who eats store-bought pie? Who eats? No, no, not in this household. Not in this household. There are pies to be baked. That's not happening. That's not happening. We don't need none of that. Right. Well, that's true. So, um, should we jump to the excitement last night? Yes. What was that? We went to the movies. I took you to the cinema. Yeah, we finally got out. Well, we got out. Come on, we get out a lot. But we, we saw yeah. we saw Jojo Rabbit. Now, this is interesting in that uh, I didn't know anything about Jojo Rabbit. I had so a couple, Jojo oh, Rabbit, yes. a movie. Yes. I had, well, let, let me prelude here. Let me give you the prologue. I had no idea about this movie. I, it wasn't on my list. And like you and Zeke, our, and our youngest... Armand. And Armand, our bartender, plotted that this is the movie we should see. And I acquiesced. And I'm glad I did. It was really good. Now, explain the movie. Go ahead. Don't no, let me I'm stop. not explaining it. Well, You're exactly. explaining it. you got to say what it's about. You say what it's about. All right. What it's about, um, this young child, this 10-year-old, who's in a German city, I presume it's Berlin, uh, toward the end of the war. Uh, and uh, the Nazis are still in charge, although the handwriting's almost on the wall that they're not going to prevail. But he, this kid's being brought up in a culture in which, you know, uh, the regime is the Nazi regime, and young boys are uh, sort of conditioned to get excited about that, as young boys do. It's all about being tough and, and getting into war, etc. And uh, he's, uh, he's carried away as a young boy would with the Nazi regime, but not in a real intellectual way. Um, and the story is, it starts out almost buffoonish. It's comic at the beginning, absurdly comic. Yeah, it's, it's uh, darkly humorous. Darkly not, humorous. You no, know, it's humorous. I, I wouldn't say it's, in some ways it's not dark. Yeah. It does not shy away from the horrors oh. of well, yes. that time period and the Nazis. It, it, it's quite clear about that. And yet, it's presented in uh, a very funny way. Yes, it, it, it changes, you know, it's a miracle, the movie, in my mind, in terms of the way it handles tone. Who's it's it made a, by? Ah, I looked it up. It's pronounced uh, Taika Watiti, who is a New Zealand director who has done Marvel movies, which uh, means two things. He did the last Thor movie that we saw. Uh, it means two things. One, it means that, you know, he's a fairly accomplished director and, and well-known. And number two, apparently he's loaded. So he's got a lot of money, and that gives him the capital to make a movie like this. He can get the movie financed. 
because you look at the movie and say, who would make this movie? Uh, but he got a group to make the movie. It is so risky in my mind in terms of tone, like the tone that you described. Well, it's hard to explain. If you suggest it to people, you know, I, I think you just wrote it off immediately because comedy about before I saw it, Hitler. Before I saw it, you're not interested, right? right? Well, okay, so you weren't you weren't going farther than that, right? Um, but that's not but what it has. Is. It has great people in it. Scarlett Johansson as the young boy's mother right. is really kind of fabulous. She's very good in the movie. And, and I hadn't heard nothing she's about She's funny. It. She's nuanced. Right. Uh, she's, she's great. Uh, Sam Rockwell is funny. Yeah. Um, the child, do you have his name? No, I don't have his name. Is it? Uh, but he was it. brilliant. He was fabulous. And look, the movie is... And uh, Watiti is in it. He plays, uh, he plays the Hitler. Um, child's uh, imaginary friend Listen. who is Adolf Hitler. And it, it's sort of comic because... It's a childlike version, a childlike view of Hitler. And he's there as a function to, to be a friend. And he's there in a very simple-minded way a child might view a so-called heroic figure as imposed by the existing regime. But at the end of the day, it's an incredibly moving film, I thought. It really is. Uh, it really is. So that's what to, that's what to, that's why I use the word miracle. Maybe miracle is too strong a word. Yeah. But to have that tone and to be as incredibly moving as this movie is and to move in and out, that's hard to do. I mean, that, that is but hard you know, to do. It really is so much closer to how life is. That's a, yeah, you, that's a that, good point. Uh, that's exactly what. Yeah. Um, well, let, let me just enlarge on that because that's a brilliant point. And the reason that I think that, that it can be that way is because it's from the perspective of the people on the ground who live in the city. It's not really about the military leaders. It's not about the big battles. It's about people trying to go about their day by day as they negotiate what the heck's going on. And yeah, uh, yeah. so it has a lot of dimension to it. And, uh, you know, it's done in a very, the, the comedy is great. It's anachronistic. Yeah. Has all kinds of American contemporary expressions. Right. And, and music. Uh, and music, The uh, accents are German accents, but they're kind of faux German accents. Right. And they're, you know, kind of, uh, you know. Um, Hogan's Heroes, basically. Yeah. But, you know, they're kind of comic book uh, versions of how, right. you know, Hitler might talk or uh, et cetera, how Nazis speak. And uh, what they think. So, well, I, I, it really, uh, I thought it was really good. I, you know, I looked it up on Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, it's one of those rare films where the critics are not as positive as the audience. The critics are seventy nine percent, which is yeah. pretty good. The audience is ninety six percent. Yeah. I, well, I, I think that's interesting. I look. I highly recommend this movie. I, I could see this movie being best picture. I, I wouldn't say it's the favorite. Mm-hmm. But the reason it is a better chance than Parasite, uh, the other movie that's being talked about that's a little bit of an independent picture, is for a simple reason. It's in English. Mm-hmm. Parasite's going to be nominated for Best uh, Foreign Language Picture. Oh, really? And those pictures okay. don't usually win. So in any event, I really recommend this movie. Jojo though, jo Rabbit. Yeah. Uh, can't, yeah, really pleasantly surprised. Um and you went to a place that uh, you you love. Well, but, a restaurant. Uh, it wasn't so. I have so a restaurant. You do. <laughs> yes. You ding, did. ding ding ding. So, there's no and, ding uh, ding. ding so uh, about once a year, yeah. I go out to lunch with uh, my friends uh, Kathy and Lisa, and every time we have a great time, we say we've got to do this once a month, and uh, we still just do it once <laughs> a year. Right. That's but about right. But this year we went to a restaurant in Milford, New Jersey, which is just north of Frenchtown. New Jersey. Yeah, it's a little bit ways. North, yeah. But yeah. Um, but, uh, and it's called Canal House Station. All right. And it is a joint venture of Melissa Hamilton and Christopher Hersheimer. Uh, two women who are, you know, 
I guess started out well. They started out in um, magazines, actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, both of them worked for uh, Savour, and uh, they. Long story short, they founded their own kind of culinary and uh, design business right. in about 2007, uh, located in Lambertville. And uh, Melissa Hamilton is interesting because she's the daughter of Jim Hamilton, who has uh, the uh, fun restaurant Hamilton's Grill right. uh, for so many years in Lambertville. Right. And he's a he's also a designer. He's right. a designer. Of, well, he's well, a set you, designer. Jim passed away a couple yeah, of years he, ago. Yeah, um, right. but he, and he designed many uh, terrific restaurants in the area. But isn't her sister well known too? Gabrielle right. Hamilton uh, is the owner of Prune, right? The uh, restaurant in New York City, and she's and she's, she's written a lot, hasn't she? She's a wonderful writer. She writes an occasional column uh, in the New New York Times Magazine section about with a recipe about food, uh, but she's also written several books. And cur- uh, is it several books? Maybe I'm over. A couple stating. books. I think a couple books. But the main point. So this restaurant, right up your alley, right up you and the gals' alley, right? Well, you know, I guess they they had a new cookbook uh, that came out recently. Yeah. Uh, poss- uh, possibly Canal House cooks every day, and um, so I've been reading a lot about them. Yeah. And they were, you know, they did a stint in the Wall Street Journal has a celebrity chef or, or a a you know a good chef. That gives a recipe every week for a few weeks, mm-hmm. and they were doing that, so they were on my radar. And uh, you know, somewhere someone mentioned that there was this new restaurant, so I immediately looked it up, and uh, the menu is limited, yeah, very limited, and they're open for breakfast and lunch Wednesday through Sunday. And it's Sunday they close at four. They serve something called Sunday supper, yeah, and it ends at four. They do it the way they want. Uh, so, um, I knew I couldn't take you because the menu is so limited, at, at breakfast, well, if you don't like those four things. Yeah, but it's also because it's a little bit of a cute place and it's a lot about the way it looks. It's a converted... It's not a cute place. It's converted... It's not a cute place. But it's converted rail station, right? It's, it's an old railroad station. Right. Right. It's exquisite. Okay. It defies expectations. <laughs> it is perfect. All right. All right. It is a delight to be there. Right. And if you go online and look at the pictures, you don't pick that up. Yeah. You need to be there. And also, um, they have a big open kitchen. Yeah. The You walk in and there they are cooking. They have these long common tables. And then in, in the other half of the restaurant, they have smaller uh, tables as well. And uh, so anyway. We had a terrific lunch. We went there for lunch, not breakfast. Lunch menu is a little bit uh, bigger. And we had possibly, I know it sounds pretty, um, I don't know, uh, normal every day. But we did have probably the best fried chicken sandwich on a brioche that one could have. Yes. Okay. Um, and really um, terrific apple tart and uh, ice cream from the Bent Spoon right. in Princeton. I will. So it, it was just a charming experience. Uh, not for everyone. Okay, right. Hours are limited. But, menu is limited. But it's, I guess, done that way so that everything they do can be perfect. Right, right. Let me just but say, it's not too, too I'm, crazy I'm fussy. all for it. I'm all for it. But you, know, you have opened the door. Stop me if you don't mind to tell to, to the fried chicken story that we didn't get to last week. And I'll just tell it fast. 
because you were in the city, you were in Mohawk last week, just to show where you stand with respect to fried chicken. And you ordered fried chicken for dinner. And Mohawk is famous for a lot of things, but not as dinner food because it is a hotel after all. And they brought you the fried chicken. And five minutes later, the waitress comes by as, as, as one does and says, how is it tasting? You turn to the waitress and said, this is the worst fried chicken I've ever had. And Sadie gleefully tells that story. Um, but it was true, obviously. So you're a little I fussy. Said, well, actually, I said this is probably ah. the worst fried chicken I have ever had in my life. Ah, there you go. Okay, but Good it all you. ended very nicely. Yes. And, uh, you know, I actually didn't make a big fuss. Yeah. But she asked, and it was abominable, <laughs> so I had to tell her. <laughs> well, if they ask, you got to say, that's my, but, but we, that's we, my policy yeah, also. But uh, we ended up great friends. Yeah, no, I'm <laughs> The waitress. Sure. Listen, there's nothing wrong with being honest uh, sometimes. No, I'm, I'm rarely honest oh. because uh, uh, I don't like... Um, a bad meal to slow down a good time. Yeah. Okay. And once you start complaining about stuff, it ruins the tone. So th- this was an exception. Okay. So uh, quickly on stealing signs, I'll only talk about this because uh, you and I were talking about it. Um, and, uh, you know, that's that's the big issue or a big issue of Major League Baseball now because the Houston Astros have been accused of stealing signs in a particularly illegal way. A okay. Now you need to explain because not everyone, yeah. not every loyal listener is a baseball super fan. Oh, okay. Yeah, explain so what a sign to, is? Yes, yeah, stealing, oh. stealing signs. Sorry, so the catcher indicates to the pitcher... It's the not pitch. trading, you know, the right, names on the doors of the locker room. Yes, give me a chance okay. here. The catcher gives it, tells the pitcher or indicates to the pitcher what pitch to throw, and the uh, pitcher generally assents, and there are uh, signs putting up one finger, two finger, three fingers, fastball, curveball, slider, whatever. And uh, supposedly, the hitter would have a great advantage if they, the hitter knows what pitch is going to come. So it's a great sport to see if the team that's batting can steal signs and indicate to the batter, uh, here comes a fastball. Because if the batter knows what's coming, they'll hit it. So it's a normal thing to try to figure out what the sign language is, is, is between the is, catcher is, and the pitcher. Right, particularly... So that if, you can right. predict those signs, Particularly if there's a, Particularly if there's a man on second base, because the man on second base can see. And then what does he do? Like signal somebody else? And yeah, they signal somebody sometimes else? they give two whistles. They have their own signs, their own signals. Okay. And, and the uh, batter hears it. So Houston was doing this. Yes. Uh, well, no. Uh, Houston, maybe they were doing that. Maybe they weren't. But that's not the issue. The issue is that Houston has been accused of using technology to steal signs. And that's what you're not allowed to do. Major League Baseball doesn't look at, doesn't is not interested in how people try to steal signs the way we describe. But it's technology that's under their skin. And supposedly, Houston had set up a camera in center field and all kinds of uh, algorithms going on to sort of decipher what the signs might be and signal that electronically to the batter. Supposedly, a pitcher named Mike Fears who played for Houston now says that was the case. So somebody blew the whistle. Yeah, if it's true. So... um why do we even care? The truth is, it's not the biggest deal in the world, but uh, it is a violation and there will be a penalty involved. The odd thing from the Mets' perspective is that they just hired Carlos Beltran and Carlos Bel- to be the manager. And Carlos Beltran, one of the things that he was being lauded about was he's such a student of the game, he knows how to steal signs. And guess what team he was on in, 19- in 2017? That's right, the Houston Astros. So... Wait a minute. Ooh. Are the Mets hiring a guy who's involved in bad business? And and now Beltran's group is saying, well, he was just stealing signs the normal way. 
not the technological way. So we'll have to see. Could be that Beltran never becomes the manager of the Mets. I think he's probably going to do all right here. He doesn't seem like a technical guy. But um, it does get a little bit uh, murky. And it's kind of funny the way the, the Major League Baseball Major League Baseball has to draw the lines here. You know, on the one hand, you say, well, you have to draw lines around technology because the home team would get an advantage. But um, there's something else going on. And it's that Major League Baseball has always been resistant to technology generally. They want the game played the way it was played 50 years ago, 80 years ago. They don't want things to be changing. And so whenever something comes up like stealing science, I say, well, people did that for years and years. But if you do it a new way, not so much. So uh, that's the controversy. You had some good stories of people stealing science. Well, in the the old times, you know, they used to, like when Willie Mays came up in 1951, they said, oh, we're stealing the science, Willie, here you go. Here comes a uh, curveball. And he leans in. And uh, it turns out to be a fastball, and he goes flying because he's leaning in. And he almost gets hit with it. And he stands up and says to the guys, no more of that. And he, <laughs> and he plays, plays 20 years. He never never gets any information with respect to science. He went back to what you call it, see ball, hit ball? See the ball, hit the ball. That's the way the best hitter is hit. And, and, and also, teams are reluctant to criticize another team for stealing science because they do it themselves. So there's a story about... Uh, uh, Lou Pinello, when he was the manager of the Yankees, getting a directive from the press box, uh, from the owner's box, really, from George Steinbender to complain about the Kansas City team stealing signs. And they said, you better act on it. And Pinello says, I'm not going to say anything. We're stealing signs also. We can't be doing it. <laughs> so it, it's more of a, you know, it's kind of a funny thing. It's a baseball folklore thing. But again, once technology gets involved, everything changes. It's not about folklore anymore. It's about something else. So uh, I think they're going to be fine. I think they're going to lose draft choices, and I just wonder about Beltron. Yeah. Well, that's uh, you know a good question. Yeah. All right. Time for a museum update. Yes. Ding, ding, ding. And uh, this time you'll have to go to Paris. A uh, new exhibition in um, the Musée d'Orsay called Degas at the Opéra. Hmm. And uh, I've been at that museum. Uh, yeah. You have. You I know have. I have. It's yeah. in an old train station. Speaking I, of converted train stations. Uh, yes. It's, uh, it's a fantastic building. It's probably Fun at least as nice as the restaurant, maybe. <clears throat> Great view from uh, the upper floor. Yeah. Uh, but uh, anyway, so this is an exhibition of, uh, you know, a lo- there are a lot of uh, famous Degas paintings, uh, pastels uh, that uh, take place uh, backstage or from, you know, looking at the, from the boxes mm-hmm. of the Paris Opera and uh, at the ballet and so on. And um, this is also going to be in Washington, D.C. at the National Gallery starting in March. Mm -hmm. So maybe you can see it there. People love Degas. People love the ballet dancers, especially the charming uh, little uh, statues, etc., most of which were cast after he died. The only one that uh, was ever actually on exhibition uh, was the little ballet dancer that is actually owned at this point. Little Dancer Aged 14, um, which is actually largely made of wax, and that uh, is owned by the National Gallery. Uh, Anyway, so, I mean, it's all very fine and interesting, uh, and uh, it's great the way that um, this article in the New York Times, and let's see who it's by, Jason Farrago, uh, and uh, it's titled Degas, parentheses, Creepy Superfan. And uh, Degas went to the opera a lot. Yeah. He went as often as he could afford it. First to the opera uh, Le Pelletier, the company's home, till the fire destroyed it in 1873. And then to the 
Choke Me to Death with Gold and Marble Garnier, which opened in 1875 and which Degas despised. You've been to the Opera Garnier. It's the one that's close to uh, Debevoy's in Paris. Oh, okay. Okay, and it is an overabundance. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's really fun. It's completely over the top in right. terms of architecture and decor mm-hmm. and uh, great fun to walk around. Anyway, uh, Degas, uh, by 1885, Degas could afford the opera's most expensive subscription, which got him a seat every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday um, at the opera. Also, so uh, s- subscribers also had a separate entrance, so they didn't have to mess with, uh, you know, mm-hmm. the other people. Also, they um, were allowed to go backstage and had access to performers' dressing rooms, etc. Oh, and then the article goes on to state that uh, the ballerinas of this period, and we mentioned this before um, in, uh, in reference to another article, that these young ballerinas were really working girls. They were just one step up. Oh, really? uh, yeah. from uh, prostitution mm-hmm. in many ways and, uh, you know, had kind of terrible lives. And uh, so they really described Degas as kind of this uh, creaky, creepy, super fan, almost stalker guy uh, watching um, these performers. And, and then he does the sculptures of them. Yeah. That's late in life. He's really lost his sight. And ah. he is just, uh, he can't really paint or even, I think, do the pastels. And he does this. He does that with wax. And mm-hmm. as I said, most of them are cast after he dies. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so, but anyway, uh, the article gives a slight, like, weird twist to looking at Degas' art. Degas supposedly hated women. He had one female friend, theoretically, yeah. Mary Cassatt, who was an expat uh, American painter. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, they worked very well together, and she was a pretty interesting person. Uh, but and you know, and the article also quotes some rather you know creepy, weird things that people like Van Gogh wrote about Degas. Oh, really? So okay, I don't know. So this is a little unsettling All because right. we think of those lovely pastel paintings well, at the theater. Talk about unsettling. There's this other article I brought to your attention about the Elgin marbles. Which you were initially not terribly surprised or impressed. The Elgin marbles, when you walk into the British Museum, the first thing you see are these Elgin marbles, which came from Greece. And you say, I thought I was going to the British Museum. And it's obvious that the marbles... I never said that. I did. And I said you. I was speaking generally. I'm speaking about me. The British Museum is another one of those places. It's supposed to be an encyclopedia of the world's art. Uh, No one told me. It was called the British Museum. The point is that the Elgin marbles, depending on whose perspective you have, uh, either belong in the British Museum or they don't. And that's been a little bit of a controversy. And the latest to add fuel to the fire is now the Chinese government, which says, where would the Greeks? We think the marbles well, belong back Elgin, in Greece. Yeah. Uh, rescued yeah. these, uh, you know, the uh, Elgin marbles are bits of the frieze, yeah. uh, the, you know, with like the Panathenaic uh, procession and so on, and uh, bits of the pedimental sculpture. Okay, so it's not like people were taking great care of these objects, right? At one point, uh, um, gunpowder is actually being stored in the Parthenon 
and uh, when the Venetians attack, everything blows up. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, and uh, at a certain point, the Venetians try to dismantle some of this sculpture themselves. They drop it; it breaks. Right. So uh, the you know these objects have a sad history. So Lord Elgin takes them, rescues them. He claimed to have some kind of authority, right. some permission from the Turks to do this. People haven't been able to find anything on record. Uh, nonetheless, he gets it uh, this uh, a good bit of stuff to England, and Parliament purchases from him. Uh, these objects in 1816 yeah. after much discussion. Mm-hmm. You know, um, so anyway, but still, uh, but but it's questionable. No question about that. It's questionable. Uh, but uh, I, it just struck me as funny that uh, President Xi Jinping has come out uh, to support uh, the Greek uh, desire yeah. to get those marbles well, back. Well, yeah, it is funny. And, that, you know, that this is an ongoing effort on the part of the Greeks to reclaim their heritage and, of course, reclaim the touristic money that goes along with people wanting right. to see uh, those irreplaceable, world-famous icons of uh, classical Greek sculpture. Yeah. Well, it's just funny. I mentioned it to you, and, and you, instead of picking up on what we'll call the more art history aspect of it, you, to your credit, said right away, you know, the Chinese have sort of imperialistic designs, don't they? And maybe that's what's behind this. Uh, they, on the one hand, are trying to become greater friends with the Greeks, and on the other They've hand... They've been making big investments. In Greece? In Greece, yeah. yes. Yeah, you're and, uh, Nothing escapes you. you know, yes. then, no, and, and you can see it's it's an inroad for them to, like... Uh, the West, okay? All right. Um, they've been making investments all over I wasn't onto the this. world. Okay? Yeah. All right. But Greece is in dire need okay. of uh, financial well, the aid, other, the, so to speak. Other, so I think it's purely mercenary. Of course, the, the point you raised was good. You can raise that point. I yes, see well, thank you. But, there. but there are Chinese sculptures that probably left China under different under similar circumstances, and they'd be interested in getting those back too. Right, perhaps reclaiming their heritage. Right. But this seems to me a very particular strategic yeah. political move. Okay. Um, and, uh, you know, I doubt the sincerity uh, tremendously. But, you know, I understand the desire to have some control over your national heritage. Yeah. You know, unless it's just a purely um, political thing. financial yeah. move. Oh, we'll see how it goes. So here's, here's really the big story to me about the Major League Baseball this week. And this is a big story. <laughs> And that is Major League Baseball is taking steps to reduce the number of affiliated minor league teams. There are 162 or so minor league teams, 160 minor league teams. And uh, in negotiations with the players, uh, the players union has complained about the salaries to the minor league teams, some of the conditions, um, you know, all kinds of things. And Major League Baseball said, okay, here's what we'll do. We will uh, consolidate the minor league teams, which is mm-hmm. another word for eliminate a bunch of them, mm-hmm. and then put in higher standards with respect to the remaining teams. We'll be able to pay those fewer players higher salaries. We'll only keep the best fields and the best in the biggest cities, and uh, that'll take care of what you want. There's only one problem with that. The teams that are eliminated are going crazy because you have, again, 160 teams. They are dropping 42 teams. They're adding two. So May I just say I'm against this? Yeah. Okay. All right. I mean, I mean, we we've been extolling the virtues of the small town right. 
uh, well, but, but, minor but, league team. I, I, I'm I'm with you, but 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 hear me out for just a second, uh. okay? All right. So there, there are teams like uh, the Lexington Legends, who they write about at some length in the Times. This team is in Lexington, Kentucky. They get four thousand a game. Uh, they're very popular in Lexington, which is not the smallest city in the world. Uh, they contribute to charities. Um, they do all kinds of great things. Uh, and uh, they're wonderful. Uh, they've been awarded the top Class A franchise. They're a success by many markers. They're on the list to be eliminated. Um, so what is, the, what is the answer that the Major League Baseball gives to these teams, which otherwise are successfully financial, when he says, we're cutting you off? They say, well, we're not really putting you out of business. All we're doing is ending the affiliation. What you should do, and what we'll be happy to encourage you to do, is to remain a team as an independent, in an independent league. And there'll be something called the Dream League, and you'll be in it, and we'll actually uh, contribute to administrative expenses and stuff like that. And you can continue to participate, the Lexington team, the Ogden Raptors, the Lowell Mass Spinners. You'll continue to be in a different league. Uh, no problem. You'll be great. Uh, so that's the debate. Because the minor league teams are saying, no, no. The only thing that makes it go, the thing that makes people feel it's professional baseball of a high caliber is, is affiliation. affiliation. Yeah. And the major league players are saying, nah, you're exaggerating that. You guys are so good at promoting. Uh, the locals love you. Uh, maybe you'll get some local players in. You won't worry so much about affiliation. You all do fine. So that's the debate. It's not as if Major League Baseball wants these folks to disappear. They don't. Mm-hmm. They very much don't want them to disappear. Mm-hmm. They're just taking away the affiliation. Now, then you get more deeply into it, and you hear from the owner of the Ogden Raptors in this article and the owner of the, the Clinton, Iowa Lumber Kings and so on, and they say, what do you think? They say, Dream King, Dream League. They're dreaming. (laughs) We're going to go out of business in 10 seconds because affiliation means, frankly, that the major league teams are paying the salaries of everybody. You're going to cut off our affiliation. This is not going to work. We're going to just go down like that. So it's a... Won't the the better players want to just play for the affiliated teams? uh, For sure, the affiliated teams will have the better players. There's no question about that. But... You know, the, what are you selling in a minor league team? Are you are you selling? Can you sell baseball that's uh, perhaps a cut below what it's been before, but uh, sell it on your own terms? It's not as if there are not successful independent league teams now. The team that we watch in Somerset is an independent team. I understand, but it is not the greatest baseball. Ooh, I hadn't heard you say that before, but uh, you're right. Uh, and, and you know, I mean. I love everything about it, yeah. but it seems to me if the things a level of it drops too low, it will. Well, look, this has been this be, as charming are, as it is. This is a big issue in uh, in Ogden, Utah, and in Lexington, Kentucky, and in Lowell, Massachusetts, and in Clinton, Iowa, and in places like that. Uh, 40, 42 different teams being dropped. That's a lot. So we'll see. I think that is a big deal. So. Uh, the New York Times is uh, runs a series of uh, obituaries uh, that uh, it's called Overlooked, or sometimes it's called Overlooked No More. And uh, it's obituaries that should have been written like right. 100 years ago or 150 years ago, and uh, these people didn't get picked up till now. And so you mentioned one uh, this week. You said, oh, it's another one of those phony obits. Phony obit. And yeah. I... And I uh, 
gave you a hard time about that. I said, it's not phony. Um, it's just that uh, it's not know, it, it wasn't is. written when they died. It's really, it's, and you know what it turned out? I read this obituary. It is a phony obit. Is it right? <laughs> <laughs> you were 100% uh, correct in the sense it's about someone who went by the name Annie Londonderry. Yeah. And her claim to fame, uh, she lived from 1870 to 1947. Her claim to fame was that she was the first woman to ride her bike around the world. Yeah. But she didn't really. Yeah. Um, and uh, she, uh, you know, she had she had crafted for herself all kinds of uh, stories about where she was from and what she had done. And uh, really, she was a, a Latvian immigrant uh, who, uh, you know, moved to Boston with her family and... Uh, um, married uh, some guy and at the age of 23 decides to do this stunt. She has kids. Yeah, she, she just she leaves goes, the family. Off she goes off at riding this bike uh, theoretically across, around the world. Yeah. Only she went by boat a lot of the time. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, and she gave a lot of talks and she just, again, she told all these stories. Most of them seem not to have been true right. about adventures she had, things she did with the her gift for self-invention and self-promotion, there was as much P.T. Barnum in her as there was Susan B. Anthony. Because another thing that's touted about this was the bicycle was, you know, the great gift to women's independence. Right. Uh, women could get uh, uh, around now and not be trapped and have jobs. It also changed women's attire. Women began to wear the bloomers because dresses are impossible. Right. On a, those long dresses with the petticoats, impossible on a bike so anyway um the you know the the story itself just uh kind of uh reels between um you know what was supposed to be true and uh right. and, and how much of it is, yeah. probably was not so um yeah you were right it's a phony <laughs> obit. right well here's a Quick thing on college football. I mean, the big story is that the Alabama quarterback, Tua, got hurt, and he'll be out for the rest of the season, and Alabama won't be a factor in the college football playoffs. But uh, put that aside. You know what's weird about college football? Just one line quickly. Um, you know, people bet on college football. People bet a lot on college football. And they, you know, the, the and Vegas has these very scientifically arrived out point spreads. Uh, Ohio State, Ohio State this week, um, was playing, I should get the team, uh, playing Rutgers, right? And they were given, they were made the favorite by 51 points, okay? Let's get this right. 51 points. Um, that's crazy. That's crazy. That means the expectation is before the game, and Ohio State's going to win by 51 points. And if they don't, it's a triumph for Rutgers. They stayed it's nuts. Within 40 points. Yeah. And in fact, that's what happened. Rutgers lost by 41 points. Great news. But I mean, what kind of competition is this? I mean, well, it has to... up the game. Well, that's because Rutgers is in the Big Ten, and they're in their Big Ten for money and whatever, and everyone's in Big Ten happy to play Rutgers and beat their brains in every week. But you can't have games like this. I mean, it's ridiculous. It's, it's one thing, sure, you see the score that got out of hand, you know it. But if people expect it, expect it, 51 points, it's ridiculous. So in any event, it just struck me. Um, 
And you had, uh, yes, oh yes, I'm waiting for this. <laughs> this is a, a review of a book, all right? And even though I, I may read this book, I may read this book. It's called, the, the review is called Hear Ye, Hear Ye, a primer on sound and hearing and on the technologies that can help save our ears in a deafening world. So this is about a book called Volume Control, Hearing in a Definite World by David Owen, described as a New Yorker writer, <coughs> David Owen. Uh, the review is by Daniel Levitin. And... Uh, he um, he says it's a great book. It is the best primer I've ever read on sound and hearing, full of advice for anyone of any age to consider if they want to preserve their ability to listen to music, carry on conversations, you know, etc. and so forth. And uh, it really sounds like he give he gives a lot of uh, valuable information in you know describing how hearing works but there's also just a lot of fun stories even mm -hmm. about nature like bats okay so uh, the <laughs> review mentions right. well we know that bats do this sound thing right. uh what's it called echolocation right all right like summer but, but uh the way um that uh, owen describes it is the sounds they're at this super high frequency pitch right mm -hmm. the sounds are incredibly loud right we can't hear them because of the frequency but if we could it would sound like uh, the bats are shooting guns out of their mouths right. and in fact how do they survive it there's their hearing like turns off for like a split second mm -hmm. until the sound bounces back mm -hmm. um, so that's kind of interesting there um, there is also another story that goes with the bats, and that is that one of their natural prey, which is a particular moth, has actually evolved uh, scales on their wings and a fur-like coat on their body that uh, kind of absorbs the sound so that it can't bounce back and give the bats the location of where they are. Oh, really? Um, so that's kind of interesting. So it's full of uh, kind of great stories like that. It's also uh, stories about uh, the importance of hearing. And uh, there's an interesting case of New York City School right next to, um, you know, above ground train of some sort. Mm -hmm. And uh, when the train would go by, it would be this deafening sound so that uh, the... Um, Teachers and students couldn't hear each mm. other talk. They actually did a study comparing uh, students going to having classes on that side of the school with students on going to class on the other side of the school and comparing uh, their uh, success in school. And it said the ones next to the train actually uh, ended up falling almost a year behind wow. academically. Hmm. I mean, there are lots of competing factors there, but, uh, you know, it's, um, you know, sound can be really crucial to a lot of aspects of your life and your sanity. Uh, and uh, they say that, um, uh, you're, you know, you, uh, in terms of cognitive ability, up to 93% of the variability in scores on neuropsychological tests occurs due to undetected, uncorrected hearing loss. Really? Um, okay. So, and uh, just uh, a couple other points that are kind of interesting. They, this is an interesting story. They talk about people who have never been able to hear before and then they get 
you know, some kind of treatment like a cochlear implant or a hearing aid, and they're able to hear. And it's really surprising for them to find out that some things have noises, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, he describes it as, uh, you know, they're really surprised by noises like farts, peeing, refrigerators, okay. Uh, the difference between somebody talking with sarcasm versus sincerity. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's a surprise that other things don't have sound. Um, snow doesn't make a sound. Sunlight doesn't make a sound uh, when it bursts out, uh, including one person who said um, they thought breasts would have a sound. I don't get that at all, um, but uh, you know, I, I don't know what they're supposed to do. But anyway, it sounds... It sounds like a very enlightening. Yeah. Uh, no comment book. on that. Yeah. Okay. Uh, but and it ends with this: yeah. that the technology of being able to improve um, hearing loss is or you know, combat hearing loss, both to prevent it and both to correct it, is um, improving multi, you know, fold, you know, manyfold. It, it's uh, it's a good time to have a hearing problem, apparently. All right. Well, that's encouraging. So just to, just to close quickly, I'd like to get something from the book uh, section every once in a while, the Times book section. And there was a funny letter uh, in which uh, uh, a 70 plus, <laughs> uh, as a 70, I'll just read it, as a woman named Felicia Ackerman. As a 70 plus woman from Brooklyn, I was taken aback by Sandra Lowe's remark in her review uh, of uh, a book by Megan Daum about her 70-plus friend who wears Native American jewelry without irony. Uh, uh, This is, again, is uh, Ms. Ackerman speaking. Why do I need irony to wear my Native American jewelry? What does Lowe think I'm entitled to wear without irony? A Brooklyn Dodgers baseball cap? I mean, uh, so there you go. (laughs) But uh, anyway, so this is a little broader interest. They say that they listed, uh, they like to do a report on uh, strange things you find on authors' websites. So Lee Child, who writes the Jack Reacher books, has on his website the opportunity to buy um, Jack Reacher coffee. He sells coffee on his website. Uh, The character drinks coffee like crazy. Um, And uh, Child says on the website, uh, they sell a particular blend. He says, I love this blend, and Reacher would too. (laughs) <laughs> so there you go. So a pound costs $15. Uh, Ann Patchett, who I know that you're reading now, or maybe perhaps you just finished, uh, has uh, the number six fiction title, The Dutch House. Did you finish The Dutch House? Yeah. Did you like it? Yeah. All right. So there you go. Everyone likes Ann Patchett. Well, well known to have a bookstore. Um, in Nashville. In Nashville uh, called Parnassus. And uh, if you get on her website, uh, what you see is a report from the bookshop dogs. It says, hello, friends. We, the shop dogs of Parnassus Books, have some updates for you, which seems that while we were out back on the grassy spot behind the store, toasting our bellies in the summer sun, some changes happened in the shop. Here's a report. So you can get that every week. Uh, Stephen King has a website uh, which he makes various observations. He sells a Shawshank prison T-shirt. Uh, but beyond that, he... Um, he uh, responds to questions, including one about, is it true you have a haunted house on Halloween in your house? And he said, you know, I did that. We used to do that. We don't do it more anymore because one time we had 1,400 people show up for candy. We ran out of candy. It was a bad situation. Uh, it's fun, but it wears everybody out and plays hell with the law. So we're not doing that anymore. And finally, James Patterson, author of uh, a million different detective novels, 
gives movie reviews. And I'll just give you one. Here's his review, two-line review of The Joker. Quote, if you're feeling a little suicidal and want to feel a lot suicidal, this is your movie. <laughs> All right. All right. Well, um, let's go have some uh, birthday cake. Yes, uh, while it's time. We're at it. And uh, so this is uh, Tamsin Granger. And Dan Abuhoff. And we'll, with Tamsin and Dan, read the paper. We'll see you again next week.